I'm reading this evening from the Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 14, beginning at the 43rd verse. Mark, chapter 14, beginning at verse 43. And immediately, while he yet spake, cometh Judas, one of the twelve, and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And he that betrayed him had given them a token, saying, Whomsoever I shall kiss, that same is he. Take him and lead him away safely. And as soon as he was come, he goeth straightway to him and saith, Master, Master, and kissed him. And they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of them that stood by drew a sword and smote a servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and ye took me not, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. In one of the classic episodes of Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone, entitled The Gift, a humanoid alien comes to a Mexican village 40 miles from the Rio Grande with a gift for the people of Earth. Everyone is afraid of the alien, except a little nine-year-old boy named Pedro. The alien gives the gift, which looks like a small notebook or tablet, to Pedro. Since the people of the village are so afraid of the alien, they are also afraid of this gift, believing that it is from the devil or some kind of black magic. They take the gift from Pedro, set it on fire, and kill the alien. A doctor retrieves a small fragment of the gift, which has a message written on it. The fragment says that those from this faraway planet have sent this representative to Earth to give them a formula which will cure all forms of cancer. Of course, the part of the gift that was the formula has been burned away. There's no doubt that this episode, which was written by Rod Serling himself, was meant to remind us of the story of Jesus Christ, who came into the world with a wonderful gift, and yet the people of earth killed the one who had come to give them the greatest of all gifts, the gift of eternal life. On this Monday, Thursday, we look back to that night in which our Lord instituted the sacrament of Holy Communion and was betrayed. After the Last Supper, Jesus goes with Peter, James, and John to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. After he has prayed, suddenly a multitude composed of the chief priests, the elders, and officers of the temple guard show up with swords and clubs to arrest Jesus, for they too are filled with a fear of this man, a fear that turns to hatred. I just read you Mark's account. Luke's account of what Jesus says to this crowd goes like this. Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus is exposing the hypocrisy and cowardice of these religious leaders who have plotted to have him arrested. Jesus is saying that they are putting on quite a performance here. They have the temple guard with their swords and clubs in hand as though Jesus is a robber. The word that is translated in the King James as thief in this passage is an interesting one. 
The kind of thief that is described here is not someone who might sneak onto your property and try to steal something without being noticed. The kind of thief mentioned here is a violent man. The word has been translated by some scholars as bandit or even a thug, as we would put it now. Probably we would use the term armed robber. Interestingly enough, this is the word Jesus used to describe the money changers in the temple when he said that they had made the temple a den of thieves, a den of marauding thugs. This is also the word Jesus used in the parable of the Good Samaritan when he describes the man who fell among thieves, stripped him, and beat him. As you can see, these kinds of thieves are brutal and cruel men. This is also the word that was used to describe Barabbas and the two thieves that were crucified along with Jesus on Calvary. Jesus is saying to those who have come to arrest him, if I'm really as dangerous as you are pretending that I am, why didn't you arrest me in broad daylight in the temple? I was teaching there day after day, and no one laid a hand on me. Of course, Jesus was aware that they were trying to do this secretly because they knew that the arrest of one whom many considered to be a great prophet, even the Son of God, would cause a great uproar. So they did all of this in secret. But the strange thing is that they did arrest him in the manner that a dangerous, violent criminal would be arrested. And then, as we follow Jesus throughout his passion, we will see that he is treated as worse than a common criminal. This man is a threat. He must be killed. And he must be killed in such a way that all would come to the same conclusion. This was a man who deserved this horrible form of death because he was far worse than a thief. Jesus questioned, be ye come out as against a thief with swords and clubs reminds us of another question that Jesus asked the Jews. In John 10, Jesus had just told them, I and my father are one. When he said that, they took up stones to stone him. And Jesus asked the question, many good works have I showed you from my father. For which of those works do you stone me? Whenever we study the public ministry of our Lord, we see him being constantly criticized and condemned. And we see that there are people always on the verge of wanting to kill him. And it's not long before the religious leaders of the Jewish people began a plot to have him killed by the Romans. As we look at this reaction to Jesus, we wonder why he is treated this way. As our Lord said, many good works have I showed you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? As we look at the life of Jesus, we see that his life was filled with good works. The Apostle Peter summarized the life of our Lord when he preached to the household of Cornelius in this way. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word, I say, ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. Peter says that our Lord was busy going from place to place, doing all kinds of good works, and those good works included healing people of various sicknesses and setting them free from demonic oppression. 
Did a man who did those kind of works deserve to be stoned? Did he deserve to be crucified? Of course not. But look at the reaction of the people when he did all these good works. You remember the story of how Jesus healed a man who had a withered hand. You would think that everyone would have been amazed and excited about such a miracle. But this miracle was performed on the Sabbath day. And the Pharisees believed it was a sin to heal on the Sabbath. So when they saw that miracle, we read, Then the Pharisees went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. Destroy a man who had just miraculously restored a withered hand to normal. When Jesus cast out demons from people, what did the Pharisees say? He casteth out devils through the prince of the devils. So the more good Jesus did, the more they hated him. Every time he cast out a demon, the more they were convinced that he had a demon. Finally, their hatred could only be satisfied by handing him over to the Romans to suffer the agonizing death of the cross. What does all of this show us? We're faced with the horrible truth that when God himself came into the world doing nothing but good works, offering us the most wonderful gift in the world, we killed him. We killed God himself. Human beings are guilty of the horrible crime of deicide. We are familiar with the various forms of murder. Homicide is the killing of a man. Genocide, the killing of a race. Infanticide, the killing of an infant. Matricide, the killing of a mother. All terrible crimes. But we are guilty of deicide, the murder of the deity, the murder of God. Some of you are familiar with the famous sermon by Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. One preacher has said that what we have described on Maundy Thursday and Good Friday is not sinners in the hands of an angry God, but God in the hands of angry sinners. This is God in the flesh, and they are angry with him. And now we see what they will do with him. Spurgeon has a sermon in which he describes a person who first realizes by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit that he has a heart so wicked that he would kill God if he could. Spurgeon says, We will not believe that our heart is opposed to God, though the preacher often warns us that it is so, and though the Word of God teaches the same. We will not be brought to admit that our heart is at war with the Lord. Why, says one, I pay respect to God and go to a place of worship. Therefore, I am not at enmity with him. Only when the Spirit of God comes do we discover that there is in our heart latent to a great extent, but also very readily developed, an enmity against the living God. Then a man starts and is astonished at himself. He asks, why is it that thoughts of God are unpleasant to me. Why is his day so long, his worship so wearisome, and his Bible so dull to me? It must be because I do not love the Lord. 
In very deed, if a proclamation were made that God had ceased to be or was no longer holy and just, there are many who would count it the best of news. Alas, man would gladly make an end of his maker. The awakened heart inquires, is it really so that I am a deicide and would, if I could, blot God out of existence and have no God because then I should be at peace? Is it indeed so? When the Spirit of God makes the man confess that it is so, then he is amazed indeed, for he did not know before how far he had fallen. Now, I am certain that if I could assure you upon solid grounds that there was no God, and consequently no need of repentance and no fear of punishment, and consequently no need of pardon through the blood of Christ, it would make many of my hearers feel much relief and would give them great ease of mind. Even very respectable and moral people would say, now we have got out of that difficulty about the new birth, atonement, heaven and hell in a very short and easy manner. And upon the whole, we are glad about it. Spurgeon was right. We may have difficulty believing that our hearts are that sinful, but isn't that what atheism is? The attempt to blot God out of existence? Isn't that what we are all doing when we will not accept the God of Scripture but invent a God we like better? Aren't we attempting to blot the true God out of existence? Actually, this week, the week that we call Holy Week, is the proof that man is at heart a deicide. For when God came into the world in Jesus Christ, came into the world doing nothing but good, doing nothing but offering us eternal life, we killed him. During this time of year, we often sing the beautiful and haunting hymn, Ah, Holy Jesus, how hast thou offended? The second verse of that hymn says, Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus, hath undone thee. Twas I, Lord Jesus, I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. It is difficult to believe these things about ourselves. Like Judas, I betrayed him. Like Peter, I denied him. Like the Roman soldier, I put the nails in his hands and feet. It's a shocking thing to face the depravity of the human heart. But Holy Week is a time when that revelation becomes so horribly vivid. We hate holiness so much that when the holiest of all came into the world, our natural response was to destroy it. Jesus said in John 3, and this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Jesus was the light, the light of the world. But the impulse of human beings was to extinguish that light, for that light reveals that we're sinful. We much prefer the darkness of sin to the light of holiness. So God himself came into the world. So God himself came into the world to offer us this incredible gift, the gift of eternal life. And we destroyed the one 
who brought the gift. But here's where the parallel between Scripture and the little Twilight Zone episode I mentioned earlier comes to an end. In that episode, because of the evil of human beings, the cure for cancer is lost forever. In the case of Jesus, it is because evil men killed him that the gift of eternal life is granted to us. In the scriptures, God uses the evil of human beings, even the crime of deicide itself, to open the way to eternal life for us. In my text, Jesus said, Are ye come out as against a thief with swords and with staves to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and ye took me not. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Notice that carefully. Mark's language is even stronger. Jesus literally says, Let the scriptures be fulfilled. And that is all he has to say to them. And he allows them to take him without resistance. Now here's the fascinating thing. I want to emphasize what I just said. He allows them to take him. He didn't have to go with them. As Bishop J.C. Ryle put it, he was not taken captive because he could not escape. It would have been easy for him to scatter his enemies to the winds if he had thought fit. Throughout the gospel accounts, we've seen Jesus do mighty works. This is the man who can heal the sick and raise the dead. This is the man who can cast a legion of demons out of a man and send them into some swine so that they plunge off a cliff. This is the man who can speak to a storm and the sea becomes instantly still. This is the man who says, I could ask my father and he would send 12 legions of angels to set me free. But what does Jesus do in this case when they come to arrest him? Nothing. This man, the God-man, does nothing. Why? The scripture must be fulfilled. He came into the world to be treated this way. If he had escaped, then there would be no way for us to be saved from sin. If he had been unwilling to die, we would have been eternally separated from God. If he had tried to resist, it would mean that he was disobedient to the scriptures because the scriptures foretold he would die in this way. And it would be in this way that we could be forgiven all our sins, even the sin of crucifying the Son of God. To quote Bishop Ryle again, he came on purpose to fulfill the types and promises of Old Testament scriptures and by fulfilling them to provide salvation for the world. He came intentionally to be the true Lamb of God, the Passover Lamb. He came to be the scapegoat on whom the iniquities of the people were to be laid. His heart was set on accomplishing this great work. It could not be done without the hiding of his power for a time. To do it, he became a willing sufferer. He was taken, tried, condemned, and crucified entirely of his own free will. This is another example of how God used the wickedness of human beings to work out his eternal purpose of reconciling all things to himself through Christ. 
On the day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter told the crowd, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Notice how Peter brings these two things together. Peter reminds them of all the good Jesus did, miracles and wonders. Nevertheless, they took him and by wicked hands killed him. But all of this had been planned before the foundation of the world by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. As Jesus said, the scriptures must be fulfilled. All of this was according to the definite plan and purpose of God. On that first Maundy Thursday evening so long ago, our Lord instituted the sacrament of Holy Communion so that we could always remember that it was through his sufferings and death that the most marvelous gift, greater than the gift of a cure for cancer or the coronavirus, the gift of eternal life has come to us. And how did he bestow this gift upon us? In John 6, 48 through 51, we read the words of our Lord, I am that bread of life, your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. The death of Jesus was no accident. The death of Jesus was not the end of a beautiful dream in which someone came with a great message and the people killed him and rejected his beautiful teaching. Sad, tragic, end of story. No, it was through being arrested as a common criminal, through suffering the mockery and injustice of men, it was through the shedding of his blood on the cross, it was through his death that he would defeat death and rise again, fulfilling the glorious proclamation that he made to his disciples, because I live, ye shall live also. Perhaps someone is listening to this sermon and you think you could never be forgiven for all your sins. Let me assure you that no matter what sins you have committed, you may still receive the gift of eternal life. We are all guilty of having put to death the Son of God. Our sins nailed him to the cross. But even from the cross, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Come before the cross, plead for mercy, and you will find that he is full of compassion and will forgive all your sins. And to Christian people, let us remember that our Lord Jesus Christ has given us this wonderful gift of eternal life. And now we have the duty and privilege of telling other people about this gift that Christ purchased on the cross. But we must remember that as we share the good news of this gift, there are going to be many who will persecute us just as they persecuted Jesus. As we pause this evening 
to give thanks for his willingness to go through this time of tremendous suffering, we need to pray that God would give us the grace, the calm dignity that is often required when we face the violence of evil men. Let us live lives so filled with good works that if the world persecutes us, if the world speaks evil of us, if the world lays hands on us, it would seem as ludicrous as when these men laid their hands on the Son of God. And also, let us pray the prayer of our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but thine be done. When this crowd arrives to lay hold of Jesus, rather than resisting, we see his determination to fulfill the plan of God. God also has a plan for each one of us. Let us be as determined to be obedient to the will of God as he was. Jesus knew that the wicked things that men were about to do to him were part of the plan and purpose of God. And if we suffer being mocked, ridiculed, and hated because we extend the gift of eternal life to others, let us remember that even the actions of wicked people toward us are part of the purpose of God for our lives. Alexander McLaren writes, we too should train ourselves to see the hand that moves the pieces and make God's will our will. Then Christ's calm will be ours and ceasing from self and conscious of God everywhere and yielding our wills to him, we shall enter into rest. I love McLaren's phrase, the hand that moves the pieces. The wicked men who arrested Jesus did not know that they were pieces that he was moving about to accomplish his purposes. Whenever we face slander and cruelty, we may not understand why these things are happening, but by faith, we can see the hand that moves the pieces. And that hand that moves the pieces is the mighty hand of God. And that mighty hand of God will use us to offer to a perishing world the gift of everlasting life, which comes only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.